Well, good morning. You got your Bibles with me? I actually want you to turn two places this morning. Our primary text is going to be Matthew 18. See if I can get my iPad. There it goes. It's turned sideways. I didn't know how I was going to navigate that. Matthew 18. What we're doing today, and it's give me just a second to help you sort of understand as we, we say a lot of things sometimes and people may or may not know what we mean when we say we're in, we preach expositionally, that is we take sections of scripture and we study it through and what it says. There's an aspect to expositional preaching that we're practicing this morning. So we're in last week, 1 Corinthians 5, we're seeing church discipline being enacted on a person that had committed incest openly and publicly within the church. And the, Paul had said, you, you need to excommunicate this guy now. We talked about that last week. And, and, but when we get to a place like this in Scripture, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is this the clearest place in Scripture to understand church discipline? Or is it explained clear in other places? And Matthew 18 is a text that this is dealt with very clearly. It's one of the most clearest teachings Jesus gave us about a specific situation. And so this is really just part of 1 Corinthians 5 today and understanding it is we must go to Matthew 18. So stand with me to your feet. As, as you stand, I've got this here to remind myself. If you give by offering envelopes, they are running behind. And so please just use these until yours comes in. I just wanted to get that out there, get that over with. Matthew 18, our text for the day as we have all been through many things, and most of us don't know what each other have been through. Let us still ourselves this morning. For we have just stood because this is God's word. What he says is truth, and what he tells us we are responsible to do. And so let us, with a sober, clear mind, look at Matthew 18, and let us begin with verse 10. Jesus speaking to his disciples, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angel always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, now we have heard your word. 
It says what it says. It means what it means. And so God give us the courage to obey what you have told us. And Lord, we desperately need the right spirit this morning. The right attitude. The right motivation. The right application. We need all these things. We need to know the principles you teach us here. So Lord, give us wisdom and understanding so that we may be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So last week, remember we said we are a new creation, which means we are Christ. I didn't know what I did right there. I just be still. <laughs> Hold on. What happened? We're Christ's representatives. We represent him here on earth. So we said there's two ways that we see and understand church discipline. We see it communally. We don't use that word much. It means we see it as a family affair. We are dealing with protecting and caring for each other as family. We also said it was missional. We are to protect Christ's name among the nations. So do you grab this this morning? You've got to get Matthew 18. Hopefully we won't understand the context here very clearly because it's critical. Church discipline then is an inseparable part of discipleship. Church discipline is an inseparable part of discipleship. This is parenting and being parented. We understand that, don't we? As a parent or your parent involved both training and correcting. It involved a consequence. It involved encouragement. We seek to build character in our children. We also seek to correct what? Bad character. Try to get to the heart of what's going on. This is discipline. This is discipleship. It is both formative and it is corrective. You, you remember, I always loved that thing. Remember the thing when you were a kid and you get your Play-Doh out and you could put it in this little plastic thing and it had a form there and you could push it down and it squeezed it out into a form. This is what we do in each other's life. We have a standard. We don't make up our standard. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Christ. He's the standard. We seek to have Him formed in each other's life. It is formative. It is also corrective. I know this is a terrible illustration, but I just use it because everybody in here knows it's true. Have you ever went to church all day long and you got home and you went into the bathroom and you're getting changed into your comfortable clothes for the afternoon? You look in the mirror and there it is. Something that's been right about here on your face and you don't know how long it's been and to realize that everybody at church probably saw it and nobody told you. You ever been to, everybody has been to that situation. You're just wondering, how long was it there? Who saw it? And then you talk to somebody, one of your friends, and said, yeah, I saw it there. You said, well, why didn't you tell me? Discipline's that way. It's supposed to be also corrective. If something is wrong, we need to know. Paul, remember, in 1 Corinthians 5, of I've got two tassels in my Bible. I like that because I can mark two texts. By the way, little P.S., you can't do what we're doing today very easily with the digital Bible. It's one of the reasons a paper Bible works well, so that you can bounce back and forth when you're contrasting a text. You remember 1 Corinthians 5. The issue that Paul keeps drilling in is pride. It's pride. Well, guess what Matthew 18 is the context is? Well, pride. <laughs> So if you flip back to Matthew 18, you see 
verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying what? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Must be me. Is it me? Is it him? Who's the greatest? Verse 2, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. We see in this text today the same thing Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 5. How do you deal with the heart of the issue? The heart of the issue is pride. So how do we as, as a congregation, as a battleground community church, make sure that Christ is formed in each other? How do we correct each other when it's not being formed? The answer that Christ gives, that Scripture gives, is the local church. If one is not committed to a local church, they are professing something with no accountability to ensure that it's true. And no desire to make sure that we exist to see Christ formed in each other, not simply in ourselves. We do not exist alone. We are baptized, brothers and sisters, into Christ and into His church. We make our profession before witnesses. This is fundamentally... What church discipline is, is to ensure that you and I are being good representatives here on earth. So I just want us to see something this morning, three things that we should practice biblical church discipline to display God's heart. We should have a goal. The goal is repentance and restoration. And we, when we practice church discipline, biblically, we have a promise of Christ's authority and presence don't want to spend much time on 10 to 14 in Matthew 18. I just want you to see it because it's the very heart of God. Look at verse 10. Remember who's in the middle of the disciples. Jesus teaching his followers. The child is right in the middle of them. And he says, don't look down on these little ones. These words, little ones, can mean a child. It can also mean those that are among us that, that are seemingly unimportant. Like a child in that culture. Here's, here's his illustration, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, doesn't he leave them, the 99 on the mountain, and go and search? And apparently this was an obvious answer because of the nature of a shepherd. I just want you to see a couple of words and phrases here. Has gone astray? That means to wander around aimlessly with no apparent mission. It's just a two-year-old, you know, that just sort of wanders around. Here's the reality. We are prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it, right? Just give us a little bit of time and we will begin to wander. So where are you going? Don't really know. Just wandering. That's what sheep do. That's what people do. What children do. Here's what the shepherd does. He goes in search of them. That means he seeks them out. He desires them. This is present active. Verse 13, what happens when the shepherd finds the wandering sheep? He rejoices. It's what I simply want you to see this morning. Verse 14, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the heart of God for church discipline. And if we don't have this heart, if we don't understand that Jesus preached this message with a child on his knee, we miss the heart of God to understand how critical this is. And we will do it harshly, and we will do it rudely, and we will do more damage than we help. Christ did it for his disciples right here with the child in the midst of them. There is a spirit of church discipline, and it is the spirit of humility and gentleness. Full restoration. I want you to see the second point now. 
Church discipline must be practiced biblically with the goal of repentance and restoration. There is a spirit, and it must not be pride. That's what he's correcting. It must be humility. So I want to first just lay out some principles, then hopefully you'll see these principles work through. I just want to give them to you. They're on the screen. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. And we'll see these working out. I just want you to understand what I'm doing this morning is not giving you steps. I've tried hard not to say that word. I want us to understand this is part of our life. And I'm trying to help you us apply it as Battleground Community Church as we go. So principle number one. In order to, to lead someone to repentance with the goal of restoration, there must be a circle of trust. That's the principle. Keep the circle of trust small. The goal in that is to maintain a person's dignity and respect. Principle number two of church discipline. How long should it take? As long as it takes. The length of time of discipline is determined by how long it takes to determine whether a person is willing to repent or unwilling to repent. Matter of fact, we'll see the first part of church discipline can take months. It can take years. Principle number three, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Fourth, church leaders both lead and instruct the congregation in the process. It's critical that, that we have leaders that understand this and understand how to both lead and instruct you through it. Church discipline is practiced only within the local church. So yes, some of these principles this morning you can do with your coworker at work that says they profess Christ, but they are not accountable to this local congregation to take this to its end. So you can only go a couple of steps and then... There's nothing else that you can do. These are good principles, but these are meant to be practiced where we have covenanted ourselves together. We see this, these principles being brought to bear in verse 15, Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You know, there's some manuscripts that have against you and some don't. The, doesn't change the meaning of the text. Sometimes we're, we're going to see sin done directly to us, and sometimes we see people going in a direction of sin, and it concerns us. The point is here, it's your brother. Now flip with me now if you've got 1 Corinthians marked. Over to chapter 5 and verse 12. Let's remind ourselves last week that Paul's told that the local church in Corinth for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? You see that? Now we're seeing very explicitly Jesus saying the same thing. When your brother sins, you go to him. The spirit is humility. The principles are clear. How about the process? I want to spend this, my, most of my time on process number one. Because this is the most critical. In other words, if you're sitting there saying, where am I in church discipline? I saw last week in 1 Corinthians 5 that something really bad's happening. And Paul comes in there and says, deal with it. Where am I in that process? As a church member. Number one, church discipline is an informal part of everyday discipleship. 
This is not mechanical. That's why I didn't want step number one, step number two, step number three. And I know if I got all of us to raise our hands, who in you likes to make lists to get things done? Most of us would raise. We've got a whiteboard in every room around here. We have them on wheels. We can follow them around behind us. We like lists. We don't get anything done without lists. By the way, Mike has got two whiteboards in his office. <laughs> We're list people. But listen, we've got to understand this when it comes to church discipline. This is simply a part of everyday life of being a child of God. This is not a step. This is not mechanical. This is not formal, by and large. The first part of church discipline, and it's often, as you look at the verse 15, this is personal. This is individual. This is private. This is for absolutely every one of you who, who calls on the name of Christ and have covenanted yourself with the local congregation. If this was done with biblical obedience, the end ones would be far more rare. This is why we, won't, we like growth groups in homes. Because informal places are the best place for formation and correction. When someone steps in a room that's painted beige, they think formal meeting. When we invite people to the coffee shops and the restaurants and into our homes, it's informal. It is where discipleship is meant to happen. Jesus taught his disciples around him. So let's give an illustration. Just to help us. Let's say that we have a small group of men. They're eating breakfast together. And there is nothing new under the sun. I've been in ministry since I was in my 20s. And we all act generally the same way. We have a group of guys that are eating breakfast together. And one of them, sometimes he just gets a little bit more or less faithful. Maybe when he's there, just a little bit more cynical. Here's what happens next. Pull away from service in the church. Happens every time, twice on Sunday. I'm busy, I'm tired, I'm, I'm, they pull away from serving in the church. Then they get a little bit less faithful in growth group. They eventually drop growth group altogether. They begin a little bit less faithful in worship. Then they drop out altogether. And eventually someone says, Where's, where are you in that process? Are you aware of that? And if you are, what are you called to do about it? This is the first step of church discipline. That if we see this happening, we have a responsibility as the person who eats breakfast with this dude every week to go and say, I love you, I care about you, there's something happening and I want to help. That's, that's the informal part. I love this quote. It says, effective church discipline requires investment before the first step. Effective church discipline requires investment. We must be vested in each other's lives. And when we see the warning lights going off, and even if they don't see it, we go towards them. We do not go away from them. This simply means you express concern for those that you're already living life with. No pastor required. No pastor required. You go to them and say, I care about you. I am with you. Galatians 6.1 Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Listen, keep and watch on yourself lest you be tempted. 
We restore people with both gentleness and humility. This is not quick. This is not easy. This is not clean. (laughs) This is discipleship. I love this quote. Commentary quoting on the book of James says this, If Christians spent even half the time taking their concerns about other people directly to them in gentleness and love, rather than complaining about them to others, we would be far healthier individually and collectively. Amen. (laughs) But pastor, what if I do that over and over repeatedly and they don't respond? Well, number two, church discipline will often involve your church leaders. It will often involve your church leaders. I'm trying to help you understand how to, not only to understand the text, but also to apply this as we go today. But look at the text. Let's look at what it says. Matthew 18, look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, this person you have went to personally, informally, and individually, take one or two along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So practically in the lie in your life and my life if this happens in our life together at this point it's going to be wise for you to involve an elder a pastor they will be involved individually and this will progress to collective involvement so someone comes to me or to one of our pastors and says so and so has offended me i'm going to we're going to ask you a couple of questions I just want you to understand this so that we can all understand how we are involved. We're going to first make sure if this is a personal offense or if this person's in sin and you have identified it and you're worried about them. Because if it's a personal offense, this is coming. I just want you to be prepared for it. I'm going to ask you, we're going to ask you as pastor, if you cannot cover this with grace and forgive. Why? Because 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, keep Loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. If you've been personally offended by people, welcome to being a disciple maker, a parent, or anywhere else where you're involved with people. People will sin against you and they will hurt you and sometimes they don't even know it. You must forgive because you have been forgiven. We will ask you, can you cover this with grace? You were sitting there going, no, I can't, or... This is not about me. This is not personal. This person is caught up in addiction or sexual sin or something. I'm concerned. I've went to him repeatedly. What do I need to do? At this point, either an elder or he's going to help you identify the principle, the circle of trust. Maybe him. Maybe it an elder individually. Most likely, just to let you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to see if that person's involved in your growth group or another circle of trust you have, and I'm going to ask somebody in that member to go with you to that. You see, this is why we need pastoral involvement. The goal is to practice our principles we see here of both privacy and establishing the facts. You see, what the text is getting us to is to make sure that sometimes we get mad at each other. We get offended from each other because your personality is not like me. Because you don't deal with stuff the same way I would deal with. And I get irritated because you're not like me. And it offends me. And then you come to the pastor and say, I don't like this person. They've sinned against me. The purpose of this is to remove personal biases. And to deal with what the Bible calls sin. 
and to deal with that biblically. This is the second part. And just so you know how we practice it here, during this step, we will eventually, this will grow toward a collective conversation with the entire elders by which we will write our concerns in writing and have a meeting with the person and seek for them and plead with them to repent of their sin. But what if it doesn't? What if they don't? Well, the text tells us church discipline involves the whole body. At this point, brothers and sisters, we're at verse 17, and this is getting formal, and this is getting serious. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. There again, your leaders are involved in this step. Elders will decide when the situation needs to be brought to the congregation of the whole. Generally, we will present general details, not specific or too specific of details. The purpose of this in the text is clear. The whole church now is to go to this brother or sister and to plead with them to repent. That's the purpose. The purpose is not for us to go have a conversation at lunch about it. The purpose purpose is to seek their repentance and their restoration through this whole process. But make no mistake, at this point, the time frame of which this is happening has, has closed. One and two can be months. It can be years. If you're dealing with someone who has addictions, a relapse is simply part of that process. So they'll make progress and then they'll relapse. And you'll help them make progress and they'll relapse. We don't give up on them. That's the point is to restore them. But what if they won't repent? It's shocking right here. And you would ask to say, well, well, pastors, does that actually happen? I just want to be honest with you about here because like I said, not my first rodeo. Here's what normally happens. When it gets to this point of seriousness, people simply pull their membership, join a church down the street, go to somewhere in unrepentance, join that church, and quench the work of the Spirit in the church. That's what generally happens. Repentance is our goal. And restoration to Christ and to His church is what we long for. It's a shocking here in this text. Even, there's a text... If they want for the, even to the church, they won't respond, then church discipline involves excommunication. In the life of a congregational church, this means that we will, that you lead this. Remember, you have now been involved in seeking the repentance and restoration of a brother or sister, and then you will be involved in removing them from the fellowship of this church. What does that mean? Do we have the authority to say to Member X, you are no longer saved? No. We don't save people, and we don't unsave them either. Here's what we are saying. We can no longer affirm your profession of faith. Because remember, they stand in the water of baptism and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, and they are my Savior. And we baptize them not only into Christ, but into the body of Christ, of which we are accountable as part of lordship. And once all of this has happened, we must tell that person, we can no longer affirm your profession. And so we remove them from the covenant membership of the family of God. But you notice something. 
Matthew 18. Very gradual. Have you noticed that? I hope you did. I know we have to get the sermon done. <laughs> it seems fast. It's not fast. It's not. It's slow. Well then, if you flip back to 1 Corinthians 5, it's not slow at all. It's fast. Right? So what's the difference between what's going on in Matthew 18 that he's teaching his disciples in 1 Corinthians 5? There's another couple of principles here that we have to have on our mind. We would say it is a pattern of life that we are looking for. The, what is characteristic in a person's life? For a Christian, that which is characteristic of our life is repentance. Repentance is not something we do one time and we're done. It is the, what is characteristic. It is what's consistent in the life of a believer. If you confront me in my sin... Say, biblically, there it is. That's God's word. That's God's character. This is wrong. Christians repent. It is not the pattern of life of an unbeliever to repent. They are characteristically unrepentant. Here's what the Bible teaches us. Those who are characteristically repentant belong in the family of God. Those who are characteristically unrepentant are outside the church because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. You see, the man in 1 Corinthians 5 is characteristically unrepentant. In Matthew 18, we are trying to determine whether the person is repentant or not because we do not know. 1 Corinthians 5, the whole church knows what's happening. In Matthew 18, the circle of trust is small and is tight. Confidentiality is key because we want that person's dignity and respect to be honored as we seek for them to repent. 1 Corinthians 5, the man's sin is public and scandalous. Matthew 18, maybe not so. 1 Corinthians 5, the man's actions posed a threat to the church and to the community at large. Action, this was serious. Immediate action had to be taken. This would be the same as if one of your paid staff or one of your elders fell into sexual sin. You must immediately terminate them and remove them, lest the name of Christ be hurt. And the church be damaged. At that point, repentance comes after the fact. So do you see there is a distinction. But there is the same. It is the same process. It is the same heart. It is the same spirit. So, it's a good question. This is a really good teaching, Pastor. But does this work? Where it work, it's worked, it works in the life of the church present, and it works in the life of the church past. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want you to see this. The context of exactly what's going on in this situation is not really important. What's really important is to understand that in this, in 2 Corinthians, which is one of only multiple correspondence to this church. We hear, we see this. Paul, remember, writing to the local church. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him 
Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What's going on there? Church discipline is what's going on there in the life of the church. Church discipline has happened. Church discipline has worked. And this person has been restored. And so he encourages them. You need to forgive him. You need to comfort him. You need to reaffirm your love for him. Do you see that? It works because it's God's plan it works. God's plan is always better than ours. And it pays to follow His plan. So we see the Spirit, we see the principles, we see the process. All of this is carried out in a humble, gentle love with a goal of repentance and restoration. But I want you to see we have a promise here in verse 18 to 20 that is so commonly taken out of context But we must put it back in its context to understand its primary meaning. Church discipline must be practiced biblically with the promise of both Christ's authority and His presence. I just want to read this together. I want to point out one thing I don't want you to miss over everything else. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, verse 19, if If two of you agree on earth about anything and ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven where there are two or more gathered in my name. There I am among them. Do you see, brothers and sisters, you dare not tread down these waters without prayer. And I guarantee you tomorrow, if you had lunch with a good friend or, or somebody that you love more than anything and they're heading down a road to destruction and you had lunch with them and you were going to talk to them about them, I would not have to tell you to pray, brothers and sisters. I promise you, you would be on your knees saying, God, help me. I can't do this without you. This is a command. This is a prayer-filled command. It is a prayer-filled command that promises that we have the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and we obey it. These are happening in the process. This is not after the fact. This is not happening after. This is happening while. This is a summary of what is going on in our lives as we practice it. What does it mean that whatever's bound on earth shall be bound in heaven? What is this authority? Well, I can't say it better than this guy, and so let me read it. Jesus is not giving the church the right to make decisions that will then become binding on God. Such a thought is alien from anything in his teaching. He is saying that as the church is responsive to the guidance of God, it will come to the decisions that have already been made in heaven. Do you understand what he just said? God has told us the way things are happening in heaven. This is happening in heaven. I tell this a thousand times to men and women. If you have a children and you have a spouse, God is holding you accountable in heaven to be the husband and father that you should be. He says this is already true. God has revealed His will to us. And as we obey it, we are simply binding on earth what God has already bound in heaven. This is confirmed by the very language that He speaks. John MacArthur says this 
Never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with the Lord than when dealing with sin to maintain purity. We have a promise of prayer-filled authority and prayer-filled support. Verse 19. If I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything and ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And no, this is not an excuse to get a new Bentley. Right? You see the context? You're sitting there thinking when somebody says that, have you ever read the chapter? This is about our disciples sitting on a hill in pride, wondering who's the greatest, and God brings a child on his knee and says, unless you be like him, you can't be one of my children. And he says, unless you take sin seriously. And he says, here's how we must live among each other. Must correct each other. We have the promise that when we do it, our Father, our Lord is with us. This is important because this is not easy. So what? I have to catch myself sometimes, make sure what I'm going to say is filtered through the gospel, not Stephen. So what? Why should you do this this morning? Why should you never think that church discipline is just about what the pastors do? Why should we pursue the wandering and sinning brother and sister? Turn with me to James. I love James. James is living proof that we don't talk about the application of a text enough because James is all about application. James... 519, brothers and sisters, I could simply say today, why should we pursue collectively church discipline together? Because God's word commands it. That is enough, brothers and sisters. That is enough. James 519, listen to what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Listen to this. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If we, don't, we don't have time to unpack that, but you should just be able to read that and say, whoa. Yeah, we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of God's rescue mission to go out and rescue the wandering sheep that He has told the disciples already. Don't you despise them. They are not seemingly unimportant. We pursue them. And we pursue them. And even if they are excommunicated, we will still pursue them. James has a promise here. Of either of a salvation from the judgment to come or the fact that we will find out that this person that we pursued was never saved to start with. And that God may use you to bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. So what today? I can't do better than Jesus did, brothers and sisters. And I don't want to end anywhere other than He ended today. So turn we back with me to Matthew 18. So let's make sure that we apply it the way Jesus applied it. Because remember... Today, this is important. 
Jesus is not just teaching us about church discipline today in Matthew 18. Jesus is practicing church discipline on his own disciples when he does Matthew 18. How we, what we read in Matthew 18 is how he's correcting the pride of his own disciples. Where does he end? Good old Peter. Look at verse 21. Just got through saying all this. This is what Peter's, Peter's got something. He's going to have to say it. You know how Peter is. What Peter says. When Peter came up, he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? So Lord, how, when does this whole church discipline thing just say, hey, we're done. Get lost, you know. Seven times? You remember the story. It's important. Where he ends. By the way, I praise God for a, a pastor who leads us in worship. For he has already made this point this morning at the beginning. So I didn't have to because you sang about it. But let's end with it, brothers and sisters. Do you remember the story that he closes his teaching out? He said there was a servant who owed a great debt. The debt was so great that he could live two lifetimes and never paid it. And he was called to an account. He couldn't pay his debt. And so he was going to, the master was going to sell his children and his whole family into slavery until he paid the debt. And he begged the master, have mercy on me and I will pay every drop I owe. And the master took pity on him. You remember? Forgave the debt completely. Do you remember what happened to the servant? He leaves from just experiencing this extravagant mercy. And he grabbed somebody who owed him a day's wage. He began to shake him. He said, pay me what you owe me. And he, the, the servant bowed in front of him and said, just be patient with me and I'll, I'll pay you. He said, no. Throw you in prison until you can pay me. In Matthew 18.32, this is the way he ended the teaching on church discipline. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on the fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This is how Jesus completes the teaching. It's with the gospel, brothers and sisters. You can't do this without it. Don't try it unless you're willing to forgive. If you're going to make disciples, brothers and sisters, you're going to have scars to prove it. And we must constantly go back to the cross and remember Romans 3.25. God put forward His own Son to be a wrath-removing substitute for those who have faith in Him. And it matters not whether they have committed incest it matters not whether they are a cannibal and a murderer or a civilized sinner. If they have faith in Jesus Christ, it is God who is both the just one and the justifier of all who believe and have faith in Him. We must believe this, brothers and sisters. God showed His love for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, brothers... Let us take this extravagant gospel and pursue those who wonder and pursue those who are broken and pursue those who are guilty of things that we don't even want to speak of out loud because our Lord has forgiven us. Let's pray together.
Lord, what a gospel that you give us. And as Lord, as I think about those all over the world now, as we're about to pray for, they've been persecuted. They're in countries with religions who have not such an extravagant gospel. Lord, you have given us such forgiveness. No shame, no guilt, all of it gone. And yet, Lord, as we prayed before the service, there are people in our mind they have not walking with you, God. And there is things that you have already determined in heaven. And Lord, we ask you to grant repentance and show mercy to those that right now are on our hearts and on our minds. And Lord, may we respond today the way you have told us to respond. We would let them know there is grace and forgiveness that God has determined repentance. Oh God, we pray that today in Jesus' name. That we would not give up on those because you have not given up on us. Now, Lord, May those who have been forgiven much stand and sing about such a greater forgiveness. And may we stand and sing that anyone who repents and puts their faith in you will be forgiven. Let us stand and sing together.